Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Sebro, and welcome to the Definitive Rap Podcast. We want to thank Vin News for hosting our show. Many people say that politics is a blood sport. If you follow the news and politics, you wonder how opposing members of Congress can even stand to be in the same room with each other. <laughs> it wasn't always like this. In the 90s, during the Clinton years, even with all the attacks, both personal and political, Bill Clinton managed to work pretty effectively with Newt Gingrich and the GOP leadership. Back then, there were also a number of senators on both sides of the aisle who were gentlemanly and actually worked hard for love of country. Today's guest is one of these gentlemen who was and still remains well-respected on both sides of the political aisle. Senator Joe Lieberman, whom Bela will introduce shortly, is the author of the new book, The Centrist Solution, How We Made Government Work and Can Make It Work Again. And after the political earthquake that took place this past Tuesday, the launching of his book couldn't have been more timelier. Senator Lieberman was regarded as the conscience of the Senate because of his integrity, his ability to work well with Republicans, and was was widely regarded as someone whose word was his bond a rare commodity in Washington these days. His book gives insight into his political accomplishments, reveals his sense of humor, which is disturbingly similar to mine, and he (laughs) shares very important lessons for those seeking office who want to make a difference and get things done. Bela? Thank you, Alan. Although I never lived in Connecticut, but I have long been a fan of Senator Joe Lieberman, and for very good reason. Joe Lieberman utilizes politics in a way that is endearing from a place that holds from the healthy philosophy that going the route of the middle road is the best way. Interestingly, many religions hold that viewpoint as well. It is the path of sincerity, and it is the way that the holy books instruct us to live. The centrist way and the solution that actually works when implemented Senator Joe Lieberman wrote the book on how to hold the country together. It behooves each and every person to read the book that will answer the question that everyone wants to know. How can we make the government work for us, just as our country's forefathers wanted? Senator Joe Lieberman is the former U.S. Senator from Connecticut, former vice presidential running mate with Al Gore, founding national co-chair of the nonpartisan group No Labels, co-chair of United Against Nuclear Iran, and author of The Centrist Solution, How We Made Government Work and Can Make It Work Again, on sale now from Diversion Books. Mm-hmm. Senator Lieberman, it gives me tremendous honor, joy, and pleasure to welcome you to the Definitive Wrap. So thank you, Bill, and thank you, Alan, for those uh, wonderful introductions. I hope I deserve them, and I you will try deserve to deserve that and to- even more. Thank you. So I, I I'd like to, to ask you. Go ahead, please. 
Um, in your fascinating book, you describe how Karl Rove and Republicans helped you defeat uh, Ned Lamont in 2006. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you never publicly spoke about it until your book. And I wonder why. And can you tell us more about that, please? Not only that, but um, you have the floor and our audience in awe. How can we make the government work for us again? That is something that people talk about all the time, especially now since many in Washington were stunned by Tuesday's developments in a blue state when Virginians yelled, stop the liberal overreach, the radical leftism. Right. So, okay, I'm going to start with the second question and come back, um, which is that that the book is called The Centrist Solution. And uh, I, I always think it's important to say that when I say centrist, it's not the same thing as being a moderate, because a centrist solution means that people of left, right, center come to the center. We're a big, diverse nation. There's, there's no unanimity of opinion or ideology. And the only way we'll ever get or ever have gotten anything done in our government is for people to come from all sides to meet on common ground in the center to, to treat each other respectfully to talk about whatever the problem is or the opportunity for America that they're looking at, probably to have to compromise because you can't ever in politics or hardly ever get everything you want. If you wait for everything you want, you won't get anything for yourself and for the people who are good enough to elect you and then to get something done. And uh, it's just not been happening in recent years. Part of it is a lot of reasons, but people don't trust each other uh, people are not willing to compromise. The, the extremes and the parties are dominating. And so in this book, I've tried to tell a story of how I decided from the beginning in my political career, influenced by some mentors I had. We had a wonderful governor, senator uh, from Connecticut, Abe Ribokov. And uh, he, he once gave a speech called The Integrity of Compromise. And it was a wonderful speech. It had a big effect on me. Um, my uh, early work in Connecticut, uh, the same. You, you get into public service not to posture and you know, make people angry or attack your opponents all the time. You criticize them when you think they're wrong, but to get something done. And it always happens in the center. So in this book, I've told the story of way I, the way I worked together on a whole range of issues with Republicans, sometimes really conservative Republicans, but we happen to agree on the issue and, and how we were able to get things done, and they can do it again today. The Karl Rove story is fascinating um, because in way beyond anything I expected. So very briefly, all the controversy about the Iraq war. Um, most Democrats supported the Iraq war of 2003 uh, until after Saddam Hussein was overthrown. And it, it got controversial. Mistakes were made by the Bush administration. But, but President Bush, I felt, really wanted to... Um, stabilized the country, whereas a lot of the Democrats were trying to get them to retreat. And I thought a retreat would have uh, damaged our credibility, encouraged our enemies, been really bad for our own security. So I, I opposed the Democratic attempts. I was one of a few Democrats. Once I was the only vote to stop uh, Democrats from defunding the American military on the battlefield. It's a little bit like today's defund the police. It was, I thought, outrageous. Anyway, as a result of that, I got primaried uh, on that one issue in 2006 when I sought re-election. 
and my opponent won the primary. He was a very wealthy person. And anyway, it's primary day, and uh, um, Karl Rove calls me and basically says, how's it going? And I say, uh, I knew him a little bit, not a lot. Uh, it's going to be close. He said, well, th that's what we uh, believe here. The boss, obviously President Bush, asked me to call you and tell you he really hopes if you lose, you run um, as an independent. And um, he, he knows that this is all, the trouble you're in politically is all about the fact that you stuck with uh, the war to try to stabilize it through the so-called surge. Um, and uh, the president appreciates that a lot. And we're going to do everything we can to help you <laughs> as an independent. I was shocked. I said, hey, Carl, thank you. I had no idea what it meant. But they did. Uh, and I think it was generally known that uh, this, the Connecticut Republicans didn't really support the Republican candidate who had his own problems in that contest. But um, uh, so I never told that story before. <laughs> I never in a way had the occasion. It's a remarkable story. And uh, I did win as an independent, of course, for my last term. And uh, I, I don't know whether I could have done it without Bush administration support, particularly financially. They, they helped raise a lot of money for me because, uh, but uh, I really appreciated it. It made a big difference. And in a way, I mean, it vindicated my bipartisan centrism and independent thinking because somehow it got me in trouble with the Democratic Party, but it helped uh, elect me as an independent in November. It's, it's a remarkable story and probably ha hasn't happened too many times in uh, modern American politics. I, I was really lucky, or I was blessed. Okay. So, Sandra, I want to add that, because in the book, you lamented um, how the DLC is no longer. I mean, I remember both Bill and Hillary saying, we are new Democrats. And I remember in your book, you mentioned John Bro and Sam Nunn, and today right. you have Joe Manchin. And these are people who I like, and I'm a Republican, and I like these men. And I didn't like seeing my party Good. go after them. But that's politics, as you know. Um, Last week, this past week, uh, James Carville, uh, and I, in his swanky Southern accent, talked about wokeness detoxification. Um, can you tell us what do you think led to the, I guess, the implosion of the DLC? Um, did Bernie Sanders' rise contribute it, and has social media contributed to it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the DLC was a phenomenal movement because it was started before I got to Washington after President Reagan's landslide re-election in 1986 by a group of centrist Democrats who said, we got to get organized. And our goal is to, I remember Al Fromm, who was the executive director, CEO, said to me when I met him, when I ran for the Senate in 1988, the goal was to elect the Democratic president in their lifetime. And little did they know or imagine that the candidate who could win would come along just a few years later in Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton had been involved in the DLC, and he had this whole new Democratic uh, centrist agenda. Uh, he got elected, and um, quite remarkably, as you said, Alan, which I describe in the book, um, Newt Gingrich comes along with the contract with America. A, a, a upheaval in the 1994 midterm elections. The Republicans carry the House for the first time in decades. I forgot how, how many years. And uh, so uh, everybody assumes it's going to be 
civil war in Washington. But these two uh, leaders, President Clinton, Speaker Gingrich, um, in some ways quite different, but in other ways quite similar. What do I mean? Uh, smart, both of them very smart, both of them policy wonks, really, and both of them for their own political reasons wanting to get something done. Uh, Clinton wanted to deliver, and Gingrich wanted to show that he could deliver on some of the contract with America. So the results, they began to negotiate work with each other, and, and uh, it was a, quite a, a stunning relationship. I was really privileged to be part of some of that. So they adopted welfare reform, criminal justice reform, and the most extraordinary was the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. And really, Clinton and Gingrich and a lot of us who helped, but a great combination of fiscal goals and really being practical, helping members of Congress whose votes they need to get pieces in it that were consistent with the goal. Anyway, it passed. And, you know, it's not remembered much, but for, as a result, for the last three years of the Clinton administration, we had a surplus in our budget. It's quite remarkable. It ended, uh, and ha we haven't seen anything like it. We're now running multi, uh, I mean, two and three trillion dollar debts every year, and the national debt cumulative is up, approaching twenty eight trillion. The last time I looked, which is going to wreak havoc on our children's future and our grandchildren and theirs. So, anyway, it was a remarkable experience. Now, you ask a really interesting question. What happened to the DLC? I, I don't know. I think that after um, Clinton left, there was a loss of his leadership. To some extent, uh, President George W. Bush was a sort of centrist Republican. Uh, but it's also true that uh, after the 2000 election, in which I was involved as a vice presidential candidate, there was such fury among Democrats that it began, maybe it didn't begin there. Clinton suffered a lot of attack from Republicans during his time, even though he worked very well with uh, Gingrich. But the attacks on Bush were feverish, and uh, it, it sent us into the spin that we're in now. And, and it seemed like the middle uh, disappeared, and with it, uh, the DLC. Now, I'm, I'm chairman of another group called No Labels. I think you mentioned it, in which we're working hard to try to reconstruct the bipartisan middle ground, both with policy suggestions that we think uh, uh, Republicans, independents, Democrats support, but also by raising money for uh, Republicans and Democrats who will, by their record, um, move to the center and negotiate. And, and this bipartisan infrastructure reform bill uh, that really should have been passed a couple of months ago, hopefully will be passed uh, by the House maybe today, um, is the result of the work of our no-labels uh, people. I don't know if I spoke about the Tuesday election. I'll just speak very briefly. Sure. And this is something Bill Clinton understood and the DLC understood. Politics is about programs. I mean, governmental subsidy programs, all that stuff. But really, it reflects what's on people's minds. And I think if you look at the exit polls from Virginia, interestingly and surprisingly, a lot of people's votes were determined based on what might be called cultural issues. Um, for instance, the fear that uh, two things that are big. One is that that um, the sort of 
woke, politically correct culture was taking over public schools in Virginia and parents' children were being taught things that they didn't want them to be taught. Uh, the second was this really uh, sort of defund the police uh, idea, which is actually not supported by that many Democrats, but has gotten a lot of attention for the left-wing Democrats who supported it. And uh, almost everybody else opposes it, including, incidentally, most uh, uh, African-American, Hispanic-American yeah. voters. Because why, why not? They're victims of crime more than anybody else. They depend on the police. Of course, they get angry when they think police have killed somebody of African-American youth uh, unfairly uh, without justification. But they're, they're not anti-police. They, they want the police there to protect them. So we're, we're going to change. And I, I, I believe and I hope that once again, in our system, the ultimate answer is the voters. And on Tuesday in Virginia and in the close call in New Jersey and in a lot of the local races in New Jersey, New York, et cetera, the people are saying to the Democrats, you're going much too far left. We, we, we decided we didn't. A majority of us didn't want to vote for Donald Trump again. But we're not going to vote for you either because you're going too far over to the other side. I hope the Democrats hear it because otherwise they're going to be in a minority pretty soon. Right. Senator, in the introduction of your book, you quote the Talmud, without governments, people treat each other like fish, the big ones winning the little ones. I love that reference. (laughs) (laughs) Can, (laughs) Can you please tell our audience who have not yet had the pleasure of reading your book in greater detail what are you referring to? Well, it's a great lesson. And of course, it comes out of the whole Talmudic development of, of Jewish law, uh, really beginning with uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, that uh, that left to their own people will not, uh, well, left to their own uh, uh, people, uh, societies will become Ill- unethical uh, uh, people who have money or power will take advantage of those who don't, and people will act immorally, and ultimately the societies will be places that uh, nobody wants to live and might even uh, descend into chaos, violence, and, and even self-destruction. So that's the whole, that's a fundamental notion in the Jewish narrative of history, which is we need law, and that includes uh, some government in the modern context. Uh, obviously, it doesn't include government that feels that it can tell people everything they want to do, including uh, how their children should be raised. If I can say what I think a lot of people in Virginia were thinking last Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, Belly, you said something which which I, I'm, I'm very proud about in the beginning of this book, which is not my, about my own career, but it is in some sense about my own life. I was raised as a traditional Jew. And, and it's, I, as I look back, people say to me, how did you become a centrist? Well, part of it is my, my religious education, um, uh, because there is in the uh, Talmud a real premium, two things really, and this is also about centrism. Uh, where, how did the Talmud develop? It developed uh, as a result of discussion and uh, argument between scholars, rabbis, uh, that usually came to a consensus about what the best way was to go forward. And with very few exceptions, they didn't end up hating each other like politicians do today. They ended up respecting each other and saying, okay, uh, now we're going to go forward to the next 
problem. And that meant they treated each other civilly, but it also meant in some ways that they had to negotiate, compromise. They were centrists. That's the way the Talmud developed. And, and it, there's a, a history of that in um, not only uh, philosophy, uh, particularly Greek philosophy, uh, which I talk about, but also in Christianity and uh, and uh, much of the scholarly uh, Islam. So uh, uh, I, I'm trying to say that, that centrism is not, it is a very important political strategy, but it has origins that go deeper than politics. Okay, so Sander, your comment is going to segue into what I was going to say earlier on. Centrism is a strategy, you know, how to work with somebody else. But, and I'm not saying this as a gushing host, but you have something that nobody else has. Um, You, when you go on Sean Hannity, again, Sean Hannity is, he's a nice guy, but again, he can brawl with people. You and him were like brothers. Um, Bill Mm -hmm. Bennett said, Joe Lieberman is my rabbi. So even though you name other centrists, you had something special that goes above and beyond. And again, I think that comes from your faith. And I think that's, that's something that well, is so important. Listen, I, I ran for Congress 20 years ago. I wore a yarmulke on my head so that I would never forget who I am. And I think that you. you being who you are, it, it takes it a, a step above beyond just being a centrist. It's character. And everyone knows that Joe Lieberman, again, I, you can't have mensch, I get the word mensch in a subtitle because no one will know how to pronounce it. But you, you were a step above what centrism represents. Thanks. So unfortunately, because I have to go on, this is going to be the last answer. We'll do this again. I've enjoyed it. So I, I, would, I would say um, uh, two things about that, which, which I appreciate. One is, it seems like an obvious human lesson. But it, uh, I learned this in the Connecticut State Senate way back when I started my career in Hartford. Um, in the end, your ability to get something done in a legislative setting depends a lot on whether your colleagues trust you, like you, etc. In other words, uh, in the U.S. Senate, oh, the big headlines, big controversies, big issues. But really, in one sense, it's 100 people going to work in the same place every day. And just like in every office or every factory or every, uh, every uh, podcast, uh, your, your trust and your pleasure and the people you're working with affects uh, how successful you are. And that's, um, that's the uh, other thing that I've found. Now, on my religious observance, um, you know, and this may be, I hope it continues to last, and I, I worry about it as I see the upsurge in anti-Semitism uh, and, and bigotry generally. But, uh, I, you know, people say to me, uh, wow, how could you observe the Sabbath and be a U.S. senator? So I always say, uh, I don't know how I could observe the Sabbath and not, uh, and uh, I don't know how I could not observe the Sabbath and be U.S. Senator because it allows me to work better six days a week. But, you know, something else very unexpected happened. And this goes to the fundamental religious nature of the overwhelming majority of the American people, which is primarily a Christian country, but other religions um, growing uh, people respect other people of faith and observance, even if it's not theirs. And um, uh, I think it, being a religiously observant Jew and having the, the faithful, the faithful opportunity to be the most prominent as, as I ran for vice president, actually helped me because I, I think people uh, respected it. It was a great 
bond. And I, I hope that religious Jews and religious people of other denominations and faiths will never feel that they have to compromise their beliefs to um, be involved successfully in American politics. In fact, um, it may actually help you. Uh, I should end this by saying, praise the Lord or Baruch Hashem. <laughs> Blessed be the name of God. Anyway, uh, uh, Bella, Alan, thank you very much. Great conversation. And uh, we'll do it again. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. I urge everyone to buy the centrist solution, how we made government work, and can we make it work again on sale now from Diversion Books. Thank you, Senator Lieberman, for giving us your time today. Thank you to vinews.com for hosting our show. And thank you to our audience for tuning in today and always. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.